This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash. Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, we'll look at young people who are staying the course. If you're a young adult and you're a Christian in today's world, your faith is probably real. And we'll be encouraged to begin as the first option, where too often we end up as the last resort. I think we're so prone to often talk about our problems to other people, our friends, to our family, or on social media before we go to God in prayer. And we'll consider the broader spiritual landscape where millions are de-churching. The secular right is de-churching at twice the speed of the secular left. And the reasons why. She ends up being kind of ruled by her soccer schedule. Church becomes an afterthought. And then when she needs something and wants to talk about serious questions, nobody there. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from the Pacific Northwest and my home station of KPDQ in Portland. And I'm also live in Seattle on 820 AM, The Word. You can catch the stream in Seattle at thewordseattle.com. Or you can catch the stream of my program by downloading the app for KPDQ at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hey, thanks for joining us. We'll begin with the state of faith among America's young people. Focus on the Family has been leading the way in helping married couples, but they're also focusing their efforts on young people and young adults as they navigate the challenges of our fast-changing world. Lisa Anderson hosts the Boundless podcast for Focus, marking 25 years of ministry to college students and young adults. She was a guest of Scott Furrow on KKLA in Los Angeles. Focus on the Family started in 1977, when the average marrying age was 21 for women and 23 for men. Mm. That has now aged to 28 for women and 30 for men. So there's an entire decade jump there, which isn't all good, you know, right. I mean, culturally, as we look at that. But also, I don't want to say like, oh, my goodness, all these crazy single people, we need to solve their problem because, Pastor Scott, I'm single, so I don't want to be... I don't want to be this outlier that's like a broken toy that has to be fixed. But that said, um, culturally, I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot to look at there. And, and even in the faith space where we've seen deconstruction happening now mm. in the church and beyond. Um, the good news is, is that you're if you're a young adult and you're a Christian in today's world, your faith is probably real because you no longer can just coast in this cultural Christianity in the landscape that we're in. And so it's calling out really those who are, are going to live out their faith and be disciples. And that's a good thing on many spheres. I think the research bears that out. We usually hear, right, oh, young people aren't going to church and this is the worst it's ever been. But I actually read that if you really look at it and you look at the number of younger adults who are committed to church, that actually things are a lot better now than they used to be, probably for the reason you just mentioned. You have to be committed if you're going to go. 
Yeah. And you look at my audience. I mean, we have a lot of Christians at Boundless who either they're the first believers in their family or they're young adult Christians who kind of have taken their parents to task for living out this kind of lukewarm, lame Christianity that has been all about the American dream and let's just be comfortable and successful. And so they're like, absolutely not. I mean, they're they're rabidly podcasting Tim Keller and Francis Chan and John Piper, and they're getting serious. And they're like, the answers that we've been given are no longer good enough for what we are facing in our lives and in the culture with the rates of anxiety, depression, mental health issues, suicide, uh, the culture, gender identity issues. I mean, this is like serious business for for this generation. And so they're ready to go after it and, and hopefully setting an example for everyone else. So when did you start at Boundless? I was there actually at the beginning of the show, which started 15 years ago. And no joke, Pastor Scott, I was running our media relations team at the time. Can't remember if I told you and your listeners this story, but um, the team that was running Boundless at the time, three married dudes with kids, and they were like, we're going to start a podcast. You're single. You like to talk. Do you want to host this thing? And I said, let me give it a whirl. And that was 15 years ago when I actually was a young adult, um, and I started that. And so now now I, I'm hopefully just that cool older aunt who's like helping young adults along the way and uh, ho- hopefully navigating some of the spaces that I didn't do too well in. So we'll see how I've done. There's always an advantage of uh, getting a little bit older and saying, yeah, here's how I screwed up. Right. And, and oh, exactly. Uh, you know, or and being so thing. honest about it, being yeah. just like, you know what, don't make the same mistakes I did. I'm going to save you some hurt and some heartache. But on any given day, I say the reason Boundless exists is that if I can get my audience studying God's word, understanding it, and applying it on a Tuesday, I will have done my job. Hmm. And that all comes down to they need to know who God is and who God says they are. If they don't understand that, they're going to be caught up in the crazy of looking for their purpose in other people. They're going to get in dead-end relationships. They're going to start cohabiting. They're going to get into this revolving door of the hookup culture and constantly looking for that fulfillment. Or it's going to turn in another direction, and all of a sudden there's going to be a, a prosperity element or a, well, I need to find myself by becoming a YouTube influencer and look at all the success and all the amazing experiences that my friends are having. And so I think for for us, it's always coming back to what does God say about who you are? And when life is hard, what has God promised? And if we don't know that and if we can't hold on to that, then we are really left holding the bag. And and that's where I say so many in my audience are becoming influencers in their own churches, their own families, their own communities, because they're kind of turning back on the boomers and saying, hey, y'all. All of this stuff that you've set yourself up for, this comfort, this I've got a big old 401k, I've at least got my home, I've at least got, what's that getting for you, you know, at this point? And, you know, all these parents who are freaking out because their kids have left the nest and now they don't have an identity. They've put too much stock in their kids and raising Mm. their kids. And, oh, I put my kids in youth group and so they're going to turn out okay. Well, they're not okay uh, unless they figure out their faith for themselves. And so... I think this generation is setting a great example for getting down to what's real, being genuine about um, bringing up these issues, and kind of going from there. Among young people who have remained in the church, there is a sincerity of heart born of the growing challenge to live faithfully in the 21st century. Dr. Bina Wilkins is a pediatrician who was inspired by the prophet Elijah in her first book, Under the Broom Tree. She was a guest on my program. 
In the book, you make the point that God often meets us in our lowest point in life. And while we might be discouraged to see young people struggling, it does present an opportunity. Why do you think, and give us some examples in your life or in the life of Elijah, where at the lowest point, God met you and perhaps you were more open to his voice than you might have been at a high point? So I think when we're at our lower points in life, um, there's fewer distractions and we're very humbly aware of our lack of self-sufficiency. So it allows, I think it kind of opens your heart to hearing what he has to say. There's a surrendering of your will and your pride uh, when you're in the lowest points. And uh, I do talk about um, in the chapter how I struggled with unforgiveness um, mm-hmm. with uh, my mom. And um, it is uh, years of struggle. And I talk about how it was in a life group that I had joined that I started to finally make a breakthrough in it. And I have to always ask God to show me where there's unforgiveness in my life. And I have to ask him to help me forgive. He's just shown me ways that I kind of go through it. It's chapter 12 about how he helped me to forgive someone who was close to me that I trusted that had hurt me for many years. And that was a broom tree moment when I was really struggling with that unforgiveness. Yeah. Elijah's first instinct when he was experiencing depression, if you will, was to pray. And yet that's oftentimes our last resort. Why do you think that's the case? Why do we see prayer as a last resort? Um, I think we're so prone to often talk about our problems to other people, our friends, to our family, or, you know, on social media before we go go to God on, in prayer. But if it's important enough to talk about, then we should be talking to God about it first. This is something that I have to work on, too. And I think uh, most of us are like this. We're so self-sufficient, able to solve problems and multitask. We can control and manipulate and manifest all things. So when a problem or issue comes up, that's our default mode, our go-to. We should be able to fix things on our own with our own abilities all the time. But that's not always the case. And Elijah got it right there. He was, and he was commended for it. His first instinct was always to pray. And he was noted to have been an ordinary man who prayed earnestly. And that's an example I think we can all follow. Now, what is it that uh, we can learn from Elijah about those moments when we, despite our successes, are overwhelmed by either depression or anxiety? I think what we can learn is that there's there's hope and, you know, you you go to God as you are. You don't have to be perfect for God to love you perfectly. And, you know, you just uh, you do the best you can. You um, you're going to fail and you just you know, that's going to be part of life and uh, that he will meet you there. If you are if you're on your knees in prayer to him, he he doesn't turn away. He loves his children. So what did Elijah do that we should consider, and how did God meet him when he was at his lowest point? So I think he was just very honest with God, respectful, but completely honest. He didn't pretend to be okay. He he pretty much was like, I'm done, and please just let this be over for me. And uh, God gave him exactly what he needed. He needed rest. He needed food. He needed water. um, And he let let him lay there until he was ready to move on. So I think that's a great picture of what God's love is really like. He's not hovering at 30,000 feet, looking down on us, separated and, and judgmental. Uh, he, he does love us and he cares for us, even the minute details of our life. How does that compare to your experience when you found yourself at a low point? 
So when I, it takes me a while um, sometimes to go get to that point because I'm, I'm struggling and I'm striving. I'm trying to fix things on my own. And it's when I'm, I'm just depleted and I, I can't, uh, I'm like, I give up. I, I can't do this. And I, I go to God in prayer and sometimes it takes me days. Uh, and I, I journal in a prayer journal because it helps me to get my feelings out when I write it down longhand. And I just uh, am still. And I just listen. And that's that's eventually what happened with Elijah after the broom tree. He heard God in a still small whisper. And that's when he was able to to get back on his feet and really go back and do what God had called him to do. What do you hope your readers will take away from under the broom tree in addressing anxiety and depression? So I hope that from reading the book that people will know what it means to be a child of God, how important it is for all of us to understand that fundamental truth, and for people to know that it's okay to seek help, seek help early on and not wait until it's a crisis situation, and know that there are people out there, there are adults who have you know, gone through the same things. There's people that you can talk to, people that understand. And I hope in reading the book that um, more people will open up their Bible and read about people like Elijah, that his story is relatable and makes them curious. There are so many examples of people in the Bible who struggled with the things that we struggle with, like um, Gideon's insecurity and need for constant reassurance, um, David, who had a heart after God that had so many missteps. He was so imperfect, but his, he had a heart that uh, sought after God, and he was commended for that. And in reading about these people, they'll, I hope they see God's love, sense his presence and his nearness, and ultimately get to know Jesus, because from beginning to end, the Bible is Jesus' story. It's the story of God's love for us. Coming up... The secular right is deterching at twice the speed of the secular left. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. I can't believe BJ's Wholesale Club has all this great new stuff. Honey, this sofa is so stylish. Yeah, stylish. And this sweater is so on trend. Try it on. That's me, Mr. Trendy. And BJ's has the hottest brands at great prices, like Sur La Table and Nespresso. And Hot Wheels. <laughs> Look, it's Barbie. Hi, Ken. Let's go to the beach in my Corvette. Attention, BJ's members. The club is now closed. Just five more minutes. Please. Saving club or on BJ's.com. Not a member? Join today. BJ's. Absurdly simple savings. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Consider this. More people have left the church in the last 25 years than the number of people who became Christians from the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and Billy Graham Crusades combined. That sentence is from a new book, that's getting quite a bit of attention. The title, The Great De-Churching, Who's Leaving 
why they're going, and what will it take to bring them back. Well, of course, there are a great number of thriving and doctrinally sound Christian churches today, and I hope you're a part of one of them. But we cannot ignore the broader spiritual landscape within which we serve. Jim Davis, one of the authors of the book, was a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. The three periods of rapid growth we had in the U.S. Um, talk about what we can learn from those and then how it's the same or different than we see this decline now. Yeah, most people, you know, kind of think of 1776 as a time when everybody went to church in the United States, but really it was just about 17% of those living in the newly formed United States of America. Of course, the the first Great Awakening had a big impact. Then the second Great Awakening had a big impact. The second Great Awakening being after 1776. And then what most people don't realize is the largest religious shift that we've had in our country previous to now was actually the 25 years post-Civil War. Our shift now, you talked about the numbers, but in terms of percentage, is 25% times greater than that, just going the opposite direction. Wow. Okay. So when we look at the Civil War numbers, we can't, I mean, what was going on in the country was obviously unprecedented. We haven't seen anything like it since. So to think that that impacted how people looked at church and what their beliefs were is just makes sense. Talk about what happened starting in the 1990s and why we're going in the opposite direction. Yeah, the 1990s was really the beginning of what we're seeing. So the number of people going to church, of course, the nuns, Reinberg, the book, The Nuns, which means you know no religious affiliation in particular. That group was just steadily and slowly climbing, but like a point a year through the 70s, which was our high watermark, and then the 80s. But in the 90s, it really started with the end of the Cold War. Uh, you know, before, during the Cold War, to be Christian and to be American, those were almost synonymous terms. I can remember as a kid, if somebody said, I'm not a Christian, it wasn't uncommon for the next question to be, well, are you a communist? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's during true. The, it was our, our, our struggle against the godless atheists. And that's when, not by coincidence, uh, in the, under the Eisenhower administration, we got, in God we trust on our money and under God on our, uh, in our pledge. That's The Cold War is what brought that about. So when the Cold War ended, there was freedom for the first time to culturally be an American, a patriotic American, but not a Christian. At the same time, of course, the internet is coming, not just a, about three years later after the fall of the Soviet Union, internet cafes come about. Uh, internet is also in libraries, in schools. So for the first time, you could not only voice your in certain well in certain areas of the country you could say I'm not a Christian and that wasn't a big deal in other areas you still couldn't really talk about it especially in the South but you had access online to interact and research other worldviews and then there really was something to the rise of the religious right politically mm-hmm. and our feeling is that some of the religious right some people who really already didn't want to be Christian would look at that and say or didn't want to identify as Christian, would look at that and say, well, if that's Christian, I'm out. You know, so what's interesting is in 2001, so we're just past the close of the decade, of course, 9-11 happens. And now, all overnight, our country's enemies are no longer godless atheists, but religious fundamentalists. And then you have a whole other crew who would say, well, if that's what religion does, I'm out. And the feeling is in the 90s, people were de-churching on the secular left. And many of them from mainline Roman Catholic churches, uh, looking at their orthodoxy scores, they probably weren't Christians to begin with. And Mm. these gave them the excuses they were looking for. Now, you fast forward to today and 
the secular right is dechurching at twice the speed of the secular left. Hmm. One of the chapters that was most interesting to me is called The Missed Generational Handoff. It's the 10th chapter of your book, Jim, and it, it talks about passing our faith from generation to generation. And you start off by saying that 10, 15, 20 years ago, if you looked in a church, you would often see people of multiple generations in the same family sitting together. So, you know, grandma and grandpa are there and mom and dad and kids. And that has really shifted over the last decade. You tell the story in here first about someone by the name of Lucy, and she's, you know, a fictional person uh, to kind of make an example for the reader about what's going on with kids. And so, you know, Lucy goes to high school or goes to elementary school, junior high, goes to an evangelical church. You know, she likes it, but she doesn't really fit in. Uh, they have a special service for junior high and high school kids. She's not all that interested in it, but she goes, eh, you know, whatever. But then she starts playing soccer. She starts to get involved with that. Then she gets a boyfriend. She starts becoming sexually active. And the more she gets involved with soccer, the more she stops being available Sunday morning and then the more her parents stop going on Sunday morning. And it's not too long before they're just going on Christmas and Easter. She doesn't have anybody to talk to about how she's feeling about being sexually active when she grew up thinking that it was something that you saved for marriage. She couldn't talk to her parents about it. There was nothing going on at church. And so over the next three or four years, she ends up being kind of ruled by her soccer schedule. Church becomes an afterthought. And then when she needs something and wants to talk Talk about serious questions. Who's there? Nobody there. So tell us about Lucy and what that tells us about what's happened in America. Yeah, we use the data, obviously, to develop these stories. It's easy to develop, though, when we've seen it so, so often around us. But we learned that there's no question the hardest period of, of life to uh, the hardest years to maintain your faith are between the ages of 13 and 30, which breaks up roughly into three different life transitions. You have your high school years. For uh, many people, you have your college years and then establishing your life as a new young professional. So, you know, Lucy, this fictional character that fits the data very well. Uh, I mean, 28 percent of D-Church evangelicals said that this was the stage of life when it was most difficult to maintain their faith. Yeah. And, you know, even as you remind me of that story, you know, I, I do think about so many churches where the students are segmented from church life until in some cases through high school. And we're never really showing them what it looks like to be a part of the broader intergenerational uh, people of God. And so I, I think she exhibits the opportunity in front of us because we're not just about getting people in pews and money and coffers. The, the children of the de-churched will, statistically speaking, likely be unchurched. And so there's a generational opportunity here for churches not only to engage the de-churched outside the church, but to think about how it is we're discipling our young people and what is a comprehensive plan? What is our goal from age 1 to 18 to be able to send these young men and women out into the world in a way where they can be fruitful? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Kath mm -hmm. and I talk about this regularly. I mean, and you, and you, I'm sure, read the articles as well, that people are so hungry for community. That people, we just with this past week, we read, oh, I, I wish I had some place to go to on Sunday morning that wasn't necessarily the church. Right, that um, was an NPR story yeah, last week. People want to gather. They mm -hmm. need, we need each other. But they don't want to do it through a church. Yeah, it's interesting because the sociological categories that have been used for over 100 years are belief, belong, and behave. Mm -hmm. And and what we're seeing is that a lot of the dechurching isn't actually a belief issue. Now, some of it is for sure, but a lot of it is actually a belonging issue. And so you, you see the reasons that 
many of the de-church evangelicals would want to come back and they're all belonging based. If my friends went, if my uh, family went, if I found a good pastor, if I felt lonely, those were the reasons that people said they would come back. Now, the sad truth is in my own life, I, uh, I've made, I've been very consistent about working out and going to the gym. Uh, some things happened in early summer that took me out and I haven't gotten back into it. I know I should go back. I want to go back, but I still haven't gone back. And so I, for me, that kind of, for a lot of these de-churched evangelicals and teachers from other other uh, theological streams they feel it they know they need it especially if they are believers uh, of course biblically speaking they were made for it um, and so i think the call as christians is to to invite those people to come back to to invite them into that kind of community even if it's just a community group or something that bridges the gap coming up god created us to know him and worship him and obey him and follow him but we as sinners have gone astray when the christian outlook returns in a moment hi it's mike gallagher i start every day by reading through the stories at daybreak insider in just 10 minutes i can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where i go with the mike gallagher show over a quarter million people get daybreak insider by email daily and it's available to you at no cost Go to DaybreakInsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's DaybreakInsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's DaybreakInsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at PublicPolicy.Pepperdine. Here in Manhattan, when how long you live depends on where you live. It's time to raise health. When your quality of care depends on who you are and health seems out of your hands, it's time to raise voices, raise expectations for better access, better outcomes, person by person, block by block, with a powerful system of care that's for everyone. Northwell is here, Manhattan, and we came to raise health. Visit northwell.edu slash NYC. You're out of breath. Your constant dry cough just won't go away. It might be asthma, it might be COPD, but it could be interstitial lung disease. ILD won't wait, and neither should you. So ask your doctor. Find a pulmonologist. The sooner you know, the sooner you and your family can face ILD together. With ILD, knowledge is power, and your strongest advocate is you. Go to lungsandyou.com forward slash learn more. I'm Georgine Rice. So we've heard the numbers, and we've tracked with what could be considered a bleak spiritual landscape. So the question is, what do we do? Well, we point people to Christ. David Wheaton has a good central focus in his work on the Christian Worldview radio program. He joined Rick Probst on Faith Talk Atlanta. You've probably seen, Rick, the the Barner research done about how low of a percentage of professing Christians actually have a biblical worldview. I, I just... Mm-hmm. You know, basic things of Orthodox Christianity, uh, that's shocking. And I, I think that actually explains a lot about, you know, why we are where we are in the church and in the country. Um, so we aim to to take almost be an extension of the local church in a way. We, we don't try to focus too much on being a parachurch ministry. We're not trying to start a movement. Right. We're trying to bring the teachings of a sound local church to the issues of our day, according to a biblical perspective, and accurately understand scripture. And then secondly, we also try to make the gospel clear. The gospel is the most important thing. 
It answers the most important question in life. How can we, as sinful humans, be made right with a holy God? And the gospel answers that question, that God created us to know him and worship him and obey him and follow him. But we as sinners are have gone astray, and uh, we've alienated ourselves from God. And if we don't repent and, and accept God's terms of reconciliation, we'll be under his judgment. But then comes the good news, that that's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to to be the substitute for us on the cross, to pay the penalty we deserve to pay so that we could be made right with God. And he, he rose from the dead, proving that his sacrifice paid in full and satisfied God's wrath and justice. So we try to be clear about that gospel, that you must repent. Like Jesus said, Rick, you must repent and believe this gospel. That's the first thing Jesus said in ministry. And so uh, that's what changes hearts. That's what changed my heart when I was in my mid-20s. Um, that changes families when, when people believe that and live by that in their family and it changes churches and by extension, even changes communities to a certain standpoint. I think that's why our country is so different now is that we have a much less percentage of those who would be, I consider born again, Christians in this country. You mentioned that unbelievers, uh, will listen to the program. Uh, give us a, maybe an instance, a story real quick of an unbeliever that was really touched deeply by what you guys were broadcasting. It's surprising, Rick. People, and even Christians, we we use the word gospel a lot, but what is it? What is this good news? The good news is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's, That's the gospel. So we try to be very clear about that. And we will direct, at some point during the program, we have, we have a page on our website called What Must I Do to Be Saved? And, Rick, this is the most visited page on our website of all the past programs, all the archives, and it kind of walks you through the question that the Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul after mm-hmm. the earthquake. I think it was in Acts 16 or 17. All the prisoners didn't leave, and he couldn't figure out. I mean, he was going to be killed for the prisoners escaping, but— Paul and Silas and the rest of them did not leave. And so his first question was, why didn't you not leave the prison? It was, what must I do to be saved? And that is the most important question in life. And the implication there is that we need to be saved. It means that we're in peril of something, that we're lost, that that, that's the implication of that question. And so that's what we have on our website, what must I do to be saved? That's what we try to bring up the gospel frequently. That's why we hear from people who appreciate the fact, you know, that may have thought they grew up in a Christian home, went to church growing up, but hadn't understood what this gospel is and what, you know, it's not something you just believe intellectually. It's not something that is just, you know, for church on Sundays. When you repent and believe in the gospel, Christ becomes your Lord, not just your Savior, but your Lord of your life. He already is Lord, but you surrender the throne of your life to him. And I think that that's the big change that I went through in my own life. I grew up in a Christian home, Rick, and it wasn't until I was in my early 20s when, when I was on a professional tennis tour, actually, a t- actually after a time of success, that I realized that you know more of this, more of success is not going to offset this really deep conflict I felt inside of myself. And that conflict was there because I was taught the right way growing up, but I was not living that way. I was living in sin. I was on the throne of my life. As I began to read the Bible and understand who God was, that he is a holy, just, and good God that desired to be in a relationship with me, 
but that I was sinning against him and I was going to be under his judgment. And I heard the good news about the gospel as that's when I really came to a point of confessing my sin, repenting and asking God to save me and keep me following him, keep me as Lord. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to do that. We can't do it on our own. And so that's such a key part of the program that, um, that we want to make clear every week that that's the most important question to be answered. What must I do to be saved? Coming up. Whenever we pray, watch out because God's hand is going to start to move. And when his hand moves, nobody can stop him. Christian mission in the Muslim world when the Christian outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. The role of HR has changed drastically over the last couple of years. That's why you need Namely, the all-in-one HR solution that helps you with onboarding, payroll, benefits, compliance, and more, all with dedicated support in one beautiful and intuitive platform. Save time, avoid error, and build a winning culture for your business. Step into the future of HR with Namely today by going to Namely.com. That's Namely.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. David Wheaton's gospel-centered focus from a previous segment is very refreshing because at the end of the day, Christians have just one message of hope, Christ's work on the cross on our behalf and man's opportunity to be reconciled to him through his atoning work. Well, that's the hope for Portland, Seattle, Chicago, Washington, D.C., and that's the hope for Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and the entire Muslim world as we seek to make disciples of all nations. Samuel Hakim is the founder and director of a unique and strategic Christian mission organization. Redeeming the Nation's Ministries is focused on reaching the Arab-speaking world with a commitment to using all of the technology available, all of the tools available, the Internet, satellite, social media, to bring the gospel to Muslims and make disciples who will make disciples, equipping them to live and share the gospel. Samuel Hakim was a guest on my program. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about the mission and values of Redeeming the Nation's Ministries. Well, uh, I thank God before we start for his grace Mm. and uh, for God to choose somebody like me to be his vessels to declare his glory. It's amazing. It's very humbling to me for God to choose a young boy from a third world country. Uh, very limited resources. And I never dreamed about the Lord using me in this capacity or any capacity to start with. But the Lord brought me here and he gave me every opportunity that I can dream of to use me to share with people that I hated. I have to be honest to declare God's grace for me. He was patient with me. I didn't like Muslim people because I grew up in a Muslim country going to school where I had to learn Islam and memorize a good portion of the Quran, it was mandatory. And then being persecuted in my own country, treated like second-class citizen or third-class citizen in my own country, I didn't have that love for Muslims. 
Then the Holy Spirit started working in my heart. And after I came here to America, the Lord said, I did not bring you here to have a better life here, which is good to have it. But I brought you here to give you the freedom that you did not have before when you were in the Middle East to share the gospel with Muslims. So now you have the freedom. I'm giving you the opportunity. And uh, through the process, I learned that the Lord does not twist our arm to do what we don't want to do. That's right. But he is always patient and loving and kind and saturate our hearts with his love and say, I gave you that love. And I remember the Bible verse in First John, we love him because he first loved us. And uh, as I start reading different translations, uh, it starts expanding my understanding for his love is not that he loves us and that's why we love him. We love because he loved us mm-hmm. first. And later on, the Lord told me, I love those Muslim people. I died for them. Would you help me to snatch them from Satan's hand, take them from a dark eternity that I don't want them to go there? Would you help them, me to bring them back to the kingdom? And he wants to restore them to the original owner. So I thank God that he gave me that grace. He gave me that opportunity. And he worked slowly in my heart to bring me to that area of tenderness where I started to love Muslims the way that God loves them. Mm. Well, as I mentioned, this is a ministry that uses the digital medium in order to reach the nations. You live in this general area, and yet you are ministering to, you're facilitating the ministry of people who live continents away. Talk a little bit about digital ministry and how that technology has made it possible for the gospel to extend beyond where you're physically able to go and is meeting the needs of those who have up to that point not had a clear presentation of the gospel or their questions answered about Islam and Christianity. We start seeing the media technology start developing, internet, satellite, and you name it. And now social media, which is all tools Satan is trying to use for evil, but God can use it for good. And what Satan meant for evil God can turn the table on him and use it for good, good, and we thank the Lord. But because of technology, Muslims start going to the Internet and start having curiosity and started to learn about Christianity and what is the teaching of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is doing the work, preparing their hearts, putting a desire in them, hunger and thirst, to search for the truth. And I tell you something. Whenever we pray, I share that so many times, I will continue to share it. Whenever we pray, watch out, because God's hand is going to start to move. And when his hand moves, nobody can stop him. Nobody can be in his ways. What we see on the ground is blowing our minds. Muslims are coming to the Lord, big numbers. I, I will share later with you, but just last week, we had five people accepted the Lord. Mm, praise God from Egypt, from Syria, from Morocco, and they are coming to the kingdom. We have several people, it's work in process as we speak now. And as we are on the air now, we have people from our team is on the internet engaging with those Muslims and day in and day out, we see them coming to the Lord. So we praise the Lord and, you know, we need to continue to pray. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the impact and the medium that you use, the kind of programming that you're developing in order that the gospel can be made known. 
Well, Georgine, the kind of message that we want to get across is, number one, evangelize. Share the good news. Tell them that Jesus loves you. Satan tried to steal us from God from the beginning. But Jesus is the Redeemer, and he paid the price for us, paved the way for us, so through him we can come back to our loving Father and have a relationship with him. So that's the main message Mm -hmm. of the Bible that God loves you, and he has plans to restore us back into relationship with him. So evangelism is number one priority for us. The second priority is we don't want to play catch and release. We don't want to catch them and then release them back to the world. We want to catch them and train them in the word of God, disciple them to be in close relationship with Jesus grow as disciples and the model we have for that is was what paul shared with timothy in second timothy 2 2 2 make disciples take converts and turn them into disciples what you have learned from me trust it to somebody who's capable to teach other people so we thank god the harvest is plenty and that's what jesus said several times the harvest is plentiful the workers are few Coming up, we don't convert anyone. Our job is to share about Jesus and what he have done already for us. A few more minutes with Samuel Hakim and Redeeming the Nations Ministries. Stay with us. Hi, I'm John Erickson Tata with Johnny and Friends. Did you know that more than 80 million Americans daily depend on AM radio for conversations, news, weather reports, and emergency information? Well, a new bill in Congress would ensure AM radio remains in cars. Because when cell and Internet services are down, this free service could be your only access to vital communication. Visit DependOnAM.com to learn how to make your voice heard. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As you and I consider the Great Commission and our part in it, we recognize that not everyone can go. While some are called, some of us are not. But we are all called to be part of what God is doing, calling out a people for himself from every nation and all the tribes, peoples, and languages. Let's return for a few more minutes of my conversation with Samuel Hakim, Director of Redeeming the Nations Ministries. Now, one of the things I want to make sure we get to before our conversation ends is how people can be involved in the work. This is the work of the gospel. I guess the first thing that all of us um, would consider is to pray. How important is prayer to the, um, the forward movement of this ministry? We cannot move forward. We cannot do anything without prayer. Prayer is going to move God's hands. Prayer is going to use what we prepare to touch lives and prepare those lives to, to receive it well. It's the Holy Spirit that opens the heart. We don't convert anyone. We have to make it very clear. And that takes the burden from our shoulder. Mm-hmm. Yes. We don't convert anyone. Our job is to share about Jesus and what he have done already for us. All of us, the whole world. It's the Holy Spirit who touches the heart and who opens the heart to receive Jesus. It's the responsibility of our audience to do whatever they want to do with the message they get from Jesus. We are just the messenger. So without prayer, we're not going to be effective in sharing the gospel or in bringing fruit of what we do and share. You know, when it comes to risk, we are in a great risk 
for sharing the gospel. Even in America, the world doesn't doesn't like us when we share about Jesus. Satan doesn't like us when we share about Jesus. He wants to keep us silent, whether we are facing Muslims or liberal culture. So prayer is an essential one. How many times we face challenges, dangerous things? You know, just last Sunday, I was visiting with some friends or Muslim converts. And one of them shared with me that the leaders of the Muslim community here knows me by name in my hometown. And they have a great deal of not love, of course. Mm -hmm. But who's protecting us? Who's using us here and overseas? Uh, It is the prayer that's keeping us protected. Uh, And I thank God for the prayer coverage. Last March, I was traveling overseas and I was filming a new program overseas. And by the time I got there, literally, I was not able to finish one word, not one sentence. And I sent prayer requests to our team here. I said, I came here, but I don't know how I'm going to film. I cannot talk. It is prayer that gave us that strength and that grace from God to finish what we have to do. So prayer cover us throughout yes. the process. Yes. You can find my full conversation with Samuel Hakim at ChristianOutlook.com. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, take a moment to sign up for our podcast at ChristianOutlook.com. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. So she ran away in her sleep.